Hey guys, welcome to the next episode of Daimara's podcast. And my today's guest is Ruan Mipagala. Hey Ruan, how's it going? What's up, Maris? Good to be here. Thanks for accepting the invitation. Um, Ruan is currently working as a men's coach, and I have invited him because his, his story of how he got there is nothing further interesting. So why don't we start with that? Can you, can okay. you share something about yourself? How you got there, your experience with the with one taste and, and all this? Sure, sure. I'll, I'll tell the short version and you tell me if you want me to expand on anything. But um, I grew up with a lot of anxiety when I was young. Um, social anxiety, just fear of things and it might have been partially from my upbringing or whatever. Um, but I grew up very afraid and that's what got me into personal development. And my first entry point was like, was, was a, a little bit of like what was the pickup community back then, but also Eckhart Tolle. I had a little bit of both. They're all disconnected, but a lot of it was he like very heady, um, very like, um, yeah, very, very uh, logical, pragmatic, the same way we learn math in school. And that's kind of how I was through college. Four-hour work week, I was very obsessed with productivity and getting the most output for every unit of effort type of thing. But what the result was like when I got graduated from college, I had accomplished some goals, haven't accomplished other goals, but then I was very disconnected from my body and my feelings. And there was a cost to that. Uh, when I was anxious, even, even if I was achieving success in like dating or, or whatever, I was still anxious. I still didn't feel good. And also eventually this led to me having a sexual dysfunction where I couldn't, uh, it was all, I mean, my body was healthy, but I just couldn't perform. I had, you know, I had, uh, basically an impotency issue, but it was all in my head. And um, doctors didn't help. I tried to take a bagger you? for a while. I was How 23. 23. Yeah. 23. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, and this, anyway, to, I, I went from like a very heady masculine attempt at personal development, realizing I need to learn something a little softer. Um, and I'd been following this, uh, this is this one TED talk I'd seen many times on female orgasm and the, the, the teacher was very charismatic and she was speaking to things I didn't really understand, but it seemed to be touching on this thing I was missing, this like emotional awareness. And so I started taking classes for a company, turned out to be a cult. I mean, now I call it a cult. Even then I called it a cult, but I didn't really know what a cult was. Um, but it was a total opposite of where I was. Like before that, I was hanging out with guys who were doing pickup or, uh, you know, guys were into four-hour work week stuff or like very male-oriented, masculine-minded environments. And I just jumped into this matriarchy, basically. It was run by women, had female ethics and female assumptions about reality. And like basic things would be like um, emotions were more important than logic a lot of the time. It was the opposite of how I was living. Um, up until then, like emotions were kind of an inconvenience that I was trying to overcome all the time, whether it was in dating or work or whatever. Um, and then, um, yeah, I spent two years, I'd say getting in touch with my anima, getting in touch with my feminine side, getting in touch with my emotions, my sexual issue cleared up very quickly. And it opened me up to, I, I guess, uh, like the immaterial side of life, like feeling and intuition and even stuff that seems paranormal, like reading people, obviously the sexual side was in this feminine world very heavily. And, um, it did turn out that you know there was a very dark side to the cult, um, so I, I left. And since then, I had just been figuring things out and trying to integrate what I the two different worlds that I was in. And eventually, became a coach. I started coaching in One Taste, but my coaching is very different now than it was then. Um, that's the short version of, of who I am and how I came here. 
It's, it's interesting because like I, I saw recently some forum and there was a guy sharing his experience from one taste and he mm -hmm. said that he, it took him like a really, really lot of time, like, like maybe years to recover from that experience because it was so intense and he was kind of like, he, uh, the way I understood it was that he was, he felt so brainwashed that it was so difficult to get back into the reality, into the real world after that experience. Mm -hmm. that it was and I'm not even sure if he's recovered until today. So it's really inspiring that, that you made the whole way through and back. Yeah, um, I have a couple of things to that. I mean, I think the hardest thing, and I don't know if this direction we're going to go with this conversation, but the hardest thing was like when you're in an environment like, like you're, so every, all of us are in conventional, like the real world, right? The conventional reality, assumptions about life, whatever. Society in every country is kind of similar unless like you're in North Korea. It's like, this is what our reality is, right? And then you go into this, like you go into a cult or you go into like a drug period or something where like the reality is so different than what everyone's in. And you come out of that and you're like, well, both of those felt just as real. And like my conclusion is like, there is no objective reality. All of these are agreements. Like the idea that everyone works Monday through Friday or whatever, whatever the assumptions are, like those are just collective agreements. They're kind of arbitrary, right? Even the idea of a week is just something people made up and enough people agree upon it that we all agree that this day is Monday or whatever. But um, so yeah, I think that's one of the hard things. And it's also, I think one of the beautiful parts of an experience like that, you realize that reality is really what you make it, but more specifically than that, just not what you make it, but what you and everyone you interact with makes it. Like we all agree that tomorrow there's no such thing as Europe, but instead this square plot of land is called whatever, like that becomes reality, which is just an agreement we make. So I don't know, that's, uh, but I, to your, to, to the, whatever, I don't know who the guy was that you're referring to, but I did have a couple of years of like, maybe like two years where I was really like, I don't know how I fit into the world anymore. Like I'd gone so far away from normal that I just didn't, I, I for a while I was like, did I ruin everything? It's like, I don't know if you've ever done mushrooms or anything, but sometimes I, I've had experiences on, on, on psychedelics where I'm almost afraid that I've fallen out of reality. Like I messed up the video game of life. Like I accidentally died, you know, like, you know, like in a Mario or something like you just died. And I think, um, there was a feeling for maybe like almost a year. I was like, shit, did I ruin my life by making this decision? But you come back and eventually, I mean, what helped me was like, okay, I did this thing for two years. It was a unique experience. I can't undo it. Um, so let me just double down on it. So that's what got me back into coaching. It's like, all right, I have some perspectives that can help people. Um, yeah. So even if my life is a mess, I'm going to see if I can help people. And then I did help people and eventually everything turned out well for me. For people who are not familiar with one taste, can you share some of the some of the processes, some of the routines, or some of the things that make it really unusual or un uncommon? Yeah, well, I'll start with what makes it not that uncommon, which is it's a personal development. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how much it exists anymore. It's changed a lot in the last couple of years, but um, it was a personal development organization that, at its core, taught people to feel their feelings, which is, I think, everyone in personal development can agree that's important. We have different methods and different uh, opinions of how or, or why, but like everyone kind of agrees that. Um, the way they did it was through a sexual practice called orgasmic meditation, where someone, usually a man, strokes a woman's clitoris for 15 minutes in a prescribed manner. It's kind of like, a, kind of taking like tantra principles, but like condensing it, making it more marketable, making it more simple. It's like uh, Tim Ferriss featured them in the four hour body uh, and call, call it the 15-minute orgasm. It's like a 15-minute practice for you and your partner to become more orgasmic. 
Like who doesn't want that, right? That's not a bad, there's nothing. In fact, I will say, you know, even though I'm critical of them now, their practice really did work. It really did help people get in touch with their sensations down to like a very precise level. So that was the core of their teaching. And then they had different more philosophical classes and communication classes, but the root of everything they taught was like, can you become hypersensitive to other people's feelings? And it's kind of the root of intuition, it's the root of good sex, it's the root of how to manipulate people if you want to go that route. A lot of uh, abilities come from being able to feel another person. I see. It's interesting because it's a completely different way to, to learning how to understand others and how to basically how to feel others. Because like, until, until I heard about that or until I heard about, the, uh, heard about this experience or like at all got into, this, got into contact with like this feeling aspect of the world, I always thought that this is a, way, this is a question of, of experience in like a therapeutic practice, like like if you're a if you're a therapist or if you work with people really intensely for a really long time, you can get there. But they think what you're saying it seems like they're pretty quickly based on these these experiences and these practices, right? Yeah, it was um yeah, because I mean, any everyone has a concept of intuition, right? You do enough things where you do enough one-on-one uh, -on -one interaction, you develop intuition with people. Everyone, everyone can kind of buy that. But um, like when when it comes to let's say you do a lot of therapy sessions, or let's say you do a lot of speed dating, so you have a lot of interactions, you will start to read people better. But you're not always going to. Very few people are going to be so precise of like, I know you're lying because you because I felt this in you, and they can like pinpoint it and like. One thing from the training that I was lucky enough to receive is that with this like finger on clitoris stroking, that was literally what it was, like moment to moment, we would get to the point where it was like, I could sense when she wanted me to lighten the stroke a second before she said it kind of thing. And mm -hmm. that might sound crazy to some people, but everyone who has an experience like that discovers something like that. And it, it, I'm not saying that anyone should even do this, but it's just, I think it's good to know, like, you can develop a level of precision in feeling people where like, you know, and, and you know, with when it comes to verbal communication, maybe it's not that precise. You can't feel like, okay, this is like the sensation in her body, you know, if you and I are talking and like, I get a sense that you're lying or I get a sense that you're hiding something or you want to tell me something, you don't, you know, whatever the intuition is, I, I learned how to trust that feeling from a lot of physical practice, which happened to be kind of sexualized. But that was, that was, uh, yeah, I think um, the deeper we go with empathy, the more it starts to seem like a paranormal skill, just because so, much, so many of us are numbed out to our ability to feel each other. And like, now this leads me to my next question, which was like magical thinking. Um, mm -hmm. I am kind of like an extremely pragmatic guy because I also have an experience with, with one person who was like, who was appearing like a coach. And he, he had these little things that I was, that I kind of dismissed when we, when we talked together, but then I realized that he was really like, like pushing me somewhere and he wanted me to trust him just for, just because, just, just because like, there was no really, he wasn't really, uh, in the normal words, he was a cultish guy, like he wanted me to trust him because of him, because of him. And I managed to trust him for like for, for a few months, and I didn't realize that he's, he was a fraud. Like part of what he was doing was, was a fraud. And, and I forgot where I was going with this question. Oh, uh, magical thinking. 
Yeah, yeah. So, so magical thinking because he was also talking about intuition, but he was unable to explain it in like in the rational terms or in, in, in like putting real arguments on the on the table. So, how 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 do you go about this? Like, like where's the where's the line between the magical thinking and actually trusting these things and yeah, really like some scientific evidence or like common sense? Yeah. So there's a there's a couple layers. I mean, to go from the most broad everyone this is kind of a cliche thing to say but everyone should ultimately run things by their own perception right even if you trust someone just because they gave you good advice once doesn't mean everything they say is accurate or but then that goes to the next thing where it's like just because something is inaccurate doesn't mean it doesn't work and like there's a difference between something being provable and being workable like if I tell you, like placebo effect, like if I give you a shirt and say, hey, this shirt is gonna make you a great public speaker, and you believe me, and you go give a great speech, obviously my reason was bullshit, like my, my explanation was bullshit, right? But if it makes you give, have a great speech, then does it really matter? Like, who cares? I mean, it's kind of like the, the, the moral of a lot of children's stories, like the secret was in you the whole time, it wasn't the magic shirt or whatever. Like, so on the one hand, it's like, does it really matter? Because when it comes to some things like, um, like the idea of mirror neurons was really popular in pop science for a while. And then everyone's talking about mirror neurons. This is how, what explains empathy and blah, 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 blah. And then, uh, and then some people said, oh, no, mirror neurons are not factual. No matter what, all of these people, including myself, all of us talking about mirror neurons and blogging about it and using it for explanations, none of us were scientists, right? I've never seen a mirror neuron. I don't really know what it is. I've only, I only know what I've heard in podcasts and books that I've read. Same with you or anybody else. None of us are neurosurgeons, right? Yeah. So like, even mirror neurons, even though it's scientific fact, it's just like a story we told ourselves to explain experience we had, and the experience we had is empathy. That's the thing that's the most real. So whatever story we tell us to make it work doesn't really matter. Now, the other end of it is if you don't, if you're not aware that your belief might be incorrect, like you have to think about how you think, right? Like if you don't consider that your belief in your magic shirt is kind of bullshit, if you don't have that room for possibility, it makes it very easy for you to falsely attribute cause and effect like if you think the, the magic shirt's gonna make you know i think you get what i'm saying everyone gets yeah. what i'm saying so it's like when i so to, to really answer your question when i'm entertaining magical thinking stuff for the, the the only reason why i ever do is for the sake of having a workable model right like if, yeah. if we're talking about like speaking to you know speaking to someone on a date right it's it's of zero use to say, oh, when she does this, your mirror neurons will have this activation and that will send a signal to your back. No, that's not good. But, but if you tell a guy like, hey, if you sense her energy and your, your intuition says do this, you should do that. Like that is actually something he can understand. And, and even if the energy, even if there's no such thing as energy passing, it doesn't matter. Even if it's bullshit, you can tell him it might be bullshit, but it'll, that way of thinking will help you get the result you want. That's good enough. The important thing is that you recognize that your model of understanding might not work outside of this context or might even be working for reasons you don't understand. So whenever I teach an idea like this for the reasons of being practical or workable, um, I try to call out this magical thinking just so people can remember. Because I noticed this when I first started teaching on my own again, after like years after the cults. Sometimes I'll just make up a term just because I, you know, we all make up terms like just here's a word that I think is a good word to explain this. And I would have guys, you know, they'd come on a call with me and they would use my terminology 
and they weren't really thinking about the fact, they weren't considering that I just made it up. It was just, I forget what terms, I, I made up a bunch, I've made up a lot of terms, but like I try to remind people that this is just a term I made up for getting this result. Just remember that it's all kind of made up. <laughs> it's important, everything is kind of made up. So anyway, I could, yeah, that's, that's the gist of how I feel about magical thinking. Yeah, it's interesting. It's like, it's like you give yourself a reason that allows you to do something that you normally wouldn't do because of this thing. Yeah. And once you, and once you, once you do that, then you can let go of that belief or magical thinking because now you know that you already have that capacity to, to, to do that and to perform and so on. Mm -hmm. and when yeah, actually, to... I want to share one thing. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I just want to share one thing that I've actually been doing recently, like in the last year. Um, a guy shared with me this idea of if you donate a certain amount of money, it comes back to you, right? A lot of people say that kind of thing in Law of Attraction or whatever. And I can't accept that in my head, but I've been doing it anyway, and I have been getting a result. And it's like I've been donating about 10% of my income, and my income has been increasing. And even though I think it's bullshit, his reason, like it doesn't make sense to me, like why, where would this come from? I've been getting the results and it's been making me feel good. And that in itself is a good enough reason for me to keep donating my income. I don't know. I just wanted to share like, that was like a thing that, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I recommend it to everyone, even though I think the reason is I can't prove it. You know, I think it's like, if you start donating part of your income, it gives you a certain feeling which gets the results you want in any way. So, um, I think there's a lot of examples of this. Yeah. I, I think Tony Robbins says that, I heard in one of in one of his events, actually in in all of his events and in, in videos he does on YouTube, that he when he had no money, that one of the reasons why how, how he how he became rich was the way the way how he thought. And example he uses is that when he had almost no money, he had last twenty dollars in his pocket, he was supposed to go somewhere with his uh, friends to the restaurant for, for having a meal, and he paid for his own meal, and then he had last five dollars and he had no like 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 not, no other money inside so he basically he was basically broke and for the last five dollars he had he gave to a to a small guy who was like five year old and he just like he just made some act that made him feel like a, like a beautiful gentleman and he wanted to reward this guy so he gave him the money and he said that like at that point he realized that this is what he wants to do to support people and give people, give people mm. money I'll, I'll put it in, in commas and yeah, like, like, and since then he says like secret to living is giving, that, that by, by giving to others, you can have this feeling that you are giving so you can receive. I don't know, like it's, it's, it's also like on this, on this border, like, like how much of magical thinking it is and how much like pragmatic it is. I don't know. Yeah, because, anyway, uh, yeah. yeah, go on, go ahead. I wanted to ask about like the, the, the cold experience. I think a big topic is manipulation. Like how, mm -hmm. how? to find out that you're being manipulated and how do you even define the word? Like what's, what's your take on manipulation? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, uh, when, when, when I speak about manipulation with people, I just let, let them define it and I just fit in, you know, even, even the word cults, like how you define a cult. I, I don't know. I'm sure we have different definitions. So if you're asking me is such and such a cult, I'd first ask you what your definition is. But anyway, with manipulation, I mean, um, well, I'll ask, answer the other one first. It's like, uh, I had Googled them before I joined, so I knew that on the third search term was one taste cult. So it wasn't like I was blind to this idea. You know, and, and like the first intro meetings I went to, they definitely acted differently than most people I had met, but not, not in mostly a good way. Like they were all like very 
intense and they're very confident and all the women were like very like sexual and, and everyone was like it dilated pupils and they all like felt really good and like you know all of it was kind of weird but it was also kind of like cool like these are like they weren't like depressed people they were like seemingly happy energized super friendly super intuitive people um so i just I, essentially i just thought you know even if there's some weird stuff i'm probably too smart to get taken advantage of right not not true at all um but like because even like uh you know i i taken psychology in college and you know most psych students read um uh, robert cialdini's I think it's nine principles or seven principles. I think it's nine principles of influence. And like, this is how every organization uh, manipulates people. And I would be like, oh yeah, one day they're doing the reciprocation principle. And here's an example of the halo effect. It's like, oh, I understand this, so I'm fine. It doesn't matter. Like the, the exact, like what I tell a lot of people is like, knowing how alcohol works doesn't prevent you from getting drunk. Like I could see all of it and I was still getting drunk because I was in it. Like that's not how, understand, like there's no such thing. I, I get kind of frustrated when some people are like, oh, I'm too smart to join a cult. It's like, no, I mean, if you have that belief system, if like your ego is so hard that you think that, you're probably more likely to be brainwashed, actually. That might be my own ego too saying, I don't, I don't know, but I do think that's true. And because um, it's nothing to do with intelligence. It's like if, you, if someone can control your inputs, they can control your perception. Um, but manipulation, I mean, everything's kind of manipulation. I mean, advertising, you know, this conversation if someone listens to it and even if it's a positive thing it's kind of we kind of manipulated this person to think differently hopefully in a better way you know everything I, that, that's still like my greater point with the, all the cult stuff is like um, our sense of reality is so um, is so arbitrary right it's our perceptions the perceptions of other people it's the agreements we make with other people that's what that's why like you know uh stuff like um your income is the average of your five best friends idea like that's a very popular idea and it's very true in that like what you see as normal uh what you see in your friends in the people around you is going to be what's your nor sense of normal and everyone reverts to what they think is normal even if they're trying hard which is why i say if, if uh, someone is trying to really change their life sometimes they need to spend time with different people just like if all of their friends think small and like live boring lives or whatever if they want to live an exciting life it's really hard if you're hanging out with those people all the time same thing with everything so um yeah everything's manipulation I see. yeah i mean this is this is this is basically my my belief as well like like you can't really define manipulation like, like where is it beyond normal or like like where is it uh, Everything is sales All the marketing campaigns are trying to to manipulate you in their products, and which is too much and which is which is not is is very is very thin line. So rather than talking about like I was manipulated by someone, I much rather say like I allowed them to manipulate me. It's like I did something against my own against my own judgment, but then it's my responsibility, not theirs, because they manipulated me or something like this. I think that's the most empowering uh, viewpoint for an individual, you know, to take take ownership for as much as possible. But at the same time, you know, if if someone was put in a Chinese prison camp, I wouldn't necessarily expect them to be able to resist all the manipulations. I mean, someone could, but uh, you know, uh, it's all give and take. <laughs> so, like, I, I have one more question to cults, like, how? How to spot that you might be in a dangerous 
place, like in a, in, a, in a dangerous code. What's your definition of code, if you can? I know it's like I know. I guess it's like similar to, to the manipulation thing. Right, right. Um, I mean, I'd say a cult is anything. Well, well, first I want to say I don't think cults are negative. I think most organizations run on cult principles, or rather, cults run on normal human. In fact, actually, cults are effective because they run on very primal family instincts. Right, a cult is a cult works when it basically fills in the gaps that you didn't get met when you were a child. In many sense, not, not actually, I want to say I want to say it better than that. A cult basically give us the experience that we want to have in our tribal time, like pre-agriculture. We were organized much differently pre-agriculture. Like we lived in clans of people who all knew us and were kind of related, and and everyone knew everything about each other. Like that's kind of what a cult gives us, which is why, for myself, and I think a lot of people. When we enter a cult, it just feels like home. It's like, oh, finally, like this, like there's some primal need that I think gets met. So I don't think they're bad. What is negative is is when um, basically what seems like it's serving you is actually serving someone else's agenda. Usually, there's one person at the top who's making all the money or or whatever. Um, so that that would be the only thing that I would say for sure um, is dangerous. Like if if everything you're doing for your spiritual benefit or for your growth ends up profiting this one person elsewhere, um, I'd worry about that. But as far as other things to note, it's like, I'd say like being aware of um, when people are all using the same memes. So like a meme, and I'm not talking about just like the internet graphic. I mean like an idea that gets passed around and replicated um, in a culty cult, like a, in a, a very culty organization, you'll see the same memes being passed around. So, like, is people are like using the same uh, perspectives without thinking for themselves. I see. So without yeah. questioning. Uh, sorry. Without questioning them, like without questioning, questioning their validity. Or? Without questioning, I think when it's done effectively, they don't even they don't even notice it. Like, so uh, my cult founder was a semiotics expert semiotics is propaganda so she was very um precise with her language and i don't know enough about nlp to know everything she did i know a couple techniques that she did on people but like um, one of the things that um i noticed about people in the cult and i think the only reason why i noticed this more than other people was that i was taking notes to write my book about it so i would sometimes write down exactly what she said and be like oh this is wait all right that other person said okay basically when people use the same phrases they're hopping onto someone else's reality. And this happens all the time between friends, right? Like if you and your friends watch the same comedy uh, or you grew up watching the same comedy, you might have the same like jokes that you say in certain situations, mm -hmm. the same expressions, that's normal. Or like internet memes, like uh, many, of us, many of us who use the internet now are in the same age bracket. We use the same phrases because we saw it on the internet. Like uh, whatever, you can think of many things, like the AF as fuck, like that. Someone came up with that, and a bunch of other people, millions of people around the world, or hundreds of thousands, started using that, that term. Who came up with it? We're not sure. But if one person came up with it and got a bunch of us to use it, we'd basically be hopping onto that person's reality. And if they did it a, a lot, like they, we were using their jokes, we were using their expressions when it came to money, we were using their explanations or like decision-making tools, we'd basically be now plugged into their reality which puts us at, at risk if their reality is negative. So I'm really picky with this, and I notice this a lot in social situations when like, I or someone will use a certain phrase for something, and then someone else will use the same exact phrase in this unusual phrase. That means that person basically submitted to the other person's uh, 
reality when it came to that context. With little things, it doesn't really matter if it goes back and forth through cares, but if it's always going in one direction and you're the person who's using other people's phrases all the time, you're probably not um, directing your own reality. You're probably letting other people determine what you perceive, which is not, it's not even bad. It's just, it just leaves you at risk if those people aren't well-meaning. Mm. I was listening to the to your episode about about one taste experience and i remember you talking about the open loops technique that, that nicole was doing and it's interesting mm-hmm. because you did it multiple times and i yeah. was not aware that you're doing it and i felt yeah. this tension in my body i felt like i felt like I, like now I, I would describe it as a, as a dopamine rush like i just wanted more and i wanted like because you just opened so many so many of them and then you said that you were doing it right now and i'm like like it's, it's so important <laughs> to know that these things exist and that when people are doing it, you are aware that they're doing it so that you don't get exposed and in risk of that. Can you share some of these? Yeah. Um, the open looping is the only one I know very clearly. Like that's the one that every time I hear it. And also like I, I speak, I think a lot of people speak that way. And honestly, being in one taste and teaching for one taste gave me permission to speak the way I think. And I think a lot of people think this way, like they keep switching topics. So like ever since I was in one taste and I would see people like Nicole or whoever teach this way, I was like, oh, it's okay to speak this way. This is exactly how it is in my head. Let me just speak this way. Um, it can also be used in manipulation technique, as you said, like where a bunch of loops are open and the person is listening is like, wait, like, it's like a cliffhanger. Like, let me know what the thing, and it's become so many things, they, don't, they can't keep up with it. And then you say, spend $20,000 on this thing. Like, oh, okay, if you say so, like, that's like that's I mean, that's kind of an exaggerated, but that things like that happen, right? So um, I, I don't, I, I mean, I don't know if I, I can say any off the top of my head. I think if anyone looks up neurolinguistic programming, there's probably a bunch. Like I, uh, I'm not an expert on it. I know enough to explain open looping, basically. Okay, so I, like for yeah. those who are not familiar, I, I I just said the basic concept. So you you start saying a story or or something, and then. Like before you finish it, you open another one and then you continue and then you open another one. So for those of you who are listening and you can see how Ruan keeps doing it all the time. <laughs> Natural. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> I'm not trying to brainwash anyone. It's just, uh, it's just a fun way to speak. But here's the difference. Because um, I was speaking about this with actually a guy who used to teach for One Taste too. because it is a very captivating way to speak. And it's also easy. And if, if you think like you, if you jump on tangents, it just feels more fun to speak this way. Um, the important thing is that you go back and close the loops. So he was like, the ethical thing is that you go back and you close all the loops. You don't leave cliffhangers because, I mean, that's you know that that's what makes it like a, just a manipulation tool. If you open all these stories, you never finish them. Um, then you're just trying to o- overwhelm the audience or something. And people are craving for more, so that kind of gives you like credit in their like in their heads and not like credit and interest and craving for more, which is that dangerous thing. Yeah, but also, you know, good storytelling. It's okay to create intrigue, right? There's nothing, everything's kind of a manipulation, right? Like, it's like, what are you doing it for? Are you doing it so that they spend money in a way that's really bad for them or they do something with their lives that's not good for them? Fine, you know, uh, that's not good. But if you're doing it to tell a good story and you have a great product that you think is going to be great for them and it's worth the money that you, you know, that's fine. But then the other thing is like, a lot of it's subjective too. Like, a lot of times in one taste, because I, I, I would manipulate people too to take their, I worked for them, so I would get people to take their courses sometimes. And 
every time I believed it was the best thing for them. I thought it was worth the money. You know, I didn't think it was a bad thing. I did different things to get them to do it, but like, I didn't think it was bad. And even the people that got me into it, I don't think I did spend a lot more money than I think it was rational, but it's also, you know, they didn't think I was, they were doing anything bad for me. They, they genuinely believed that they were getting me to do something that was worth it for me. So who, is it, is that wrong? I mean, it's kind of an opinion of what's worth it for someone to do. Yeah, it's uh, it'll be a longer philosophical discussion on the right, <clears throat> on the right, right. moral of the story. <clears throat> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, I, I want to jump into uh, the topic that you already started in the beginning a little bit, which is erectile dysfunction. You had this experience, and you you managed to cure like very quickly in one taste. And I also read that you were a little bit bit of hustle around psychology today. So like many guys went through <laughs> went through your hands when when they when they wanted to get cured. So I just want to clarify: I did not physically touch anyone <laughs> yeah. to help them with their erectile dysfunction. It was yeah. all verbal I, communication. I realized the metaphor. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so what 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 do you think are the most common causes, or how how what was that thing that cured you? How do you help other guys um, go through that? Yeah, I was thinking about this. Uh, well, anyway, I was um, at its most basic root. If a healthy guy, a physically healthy guy, is having um, a psychosomatic uh, or psychogenic sexual dysfunction, so typically ED or premature ejaculation, one of those two things, it's uh, because their sympathetic nervous system is too active. Again, I just want to call myself out. I. I I am using science words to tell a story for people to understand this, but I don't necessarily know that a sympathetic nervous system is active. This is all stuff I've read in books, right? But this is how I explain it to people, and I think it's true. Um, your, your, your fight or flight response is, is too active, uh, and therefore you can't, you know, your body's not going to divert resources towards procreation if you're under stress, if you think you're in danger. A lot of guys have an overactive uh, sympathetic nervous system for various reasons, and these are my theories, like, I think internet porn is a huge culprit. I th think certain parts of uh, our culture, I think uh, extremist feminism has raised boys in a way that they're ashamed of their masculinity, especially their sexual, the sexual side. I think a lot of these things, uh, I think in general, electronics are not good for attention spans. I think these cause stress responses too. Um, so at its root, the solution is to get people out of their stress response when it comes to sex and be in a parasympathetic state where like, your body's actually geared towards a healthy arousal response and procreation, all that stuff. Now, to drop a level lower, like what does that actually mean in practice? In a nutshell, it's learning how to feel your feelings and be okay with them. Because um, a lot of times, uh, so, so sensation and emotion, it's an open loop, I didn't mean to, but sensations and emotions are like the same thing, right? They're feelings, right? And a lot of men learn to, block their flow of emotions and what eventually will happen is they block their their sense of sensation right like there's nothing wrong with my the nerve endings in my lower part of my body they worked but i didn't feel anything because i was so cut off emotionally living in my head whatever being disconnected from my body which is all related to being disconnected from feelings so what really cured me in in one taste was sensation awareness like the coming from the physical practices that I mentioned, but also there's a lot of opportunity to speak vulnerably, which allowed me to feel my emotions in connection with other people. And uh, that the combination of those two things is what helped. So like with guys I work with, like it's, it's a little different. Everyone's situation is a little bit different. 
But at the root, if it really is a psychogenic problem, it's always something like that. They're disconnected from their body or they don't want to feel their emotions or they don't know how they don't, they weren't aware that they weren't feeling their emotions and something's causing a stress response. And sometimes guys are so numbed out or they're so apathetic. They don't realize they're having a stress response when they're in bed with a woman and they wonder why their dick won't get up or they come immediately or something like that. And um, it's almost always um, what I said, <laughs> feeling your feelings and there's different ways to that. So it's like, it's like anytime you suppress any feeling, you're suppressing the, your capacity to feel and your capacity to acknowledge sensations in your body. And this is basically the, this can be like taken as a, as a root cause of, of this, right? Totally. I mean, to use a magical thinking or a metaphoric model, it's like if you think of a, you know, your flow of sensation is a valve for arousal, for joy, for sadness, for happiness, for connection, whatever. And you're, you don't want to feel you don't want to feel grief or you don't want to feel connection. You sh shut the valve. Now arousal can't come through any either. And that's almost uh, always the case. Yeah. I wonder how, what, what would you recommend to guys who are kind of shy to reach out or who, who don't really want to consult anyone, but they just want to get this, this thing done. What can they do by themselves? Uh, well, as far as physical awareness, I mean, I have an online course. They could check out arousalcontrolsecrets.com. They can do it in the privacy of their own home. But I would challenge them if, if like, because actually I even say, I, a guy was, one of the guys in my, in my class, in my arousal control class, I was even telling him, like, all of the stuff, I believe in it, obviously. I, you know, I, I have this course on it. I believe in sensation awareness and learning certain sexual skills to uh, uh, circulate your sexual energy. Um, but if you're specifically afraid to talk to people, chances are that is your big blockage like you're afraid to be vulnerable with people that's probably a bigger deal than your sensation awareness if, if you're afraid of it if you're like you're specifically like i don't want to talk to anybody about this i don't want anyone ever to know even a stranger on the internet i don't want him to know if that's where you're you are you're probably living with a lot of shame and um that's the thing to tackle first mm -hmm. and i see so well my the, the way what, what I would recommend in, in this kind of situation is to do small things, like to, to change yourself in small things and go allow to allow yourself to feel, allowing oneself to feel the shame and going through it anyway and relaxing the shame, which someone who has like a high social anxiety can totally be asking strangers for time. Like what's the time? Mm -hmm. And not running away from the feeling of, of guilt or, or shame or anxiety, whatever that is, and just being able to, re to relax in it. Because I think like, Mm -hmm. Not being, not wanting to relax in it and wanting to escape from it is actually what's causing it even stronger the next time. Totally. Yeah, because actually uh, one of the things that really helped me, you know, like what you just mentioned is probably a great starting point for someone who can't even speak to anyone, right? But what, with the sexual issues specifically, when I started sp telling women, like, hey, I have this problem before it even happened, I was like shining a light on this thing that I was trying to hide the shame went away because it's like how it's like the two things couldn't stay. I couldn't be willingly share, sharing this thing I'm embarrassed about and try to hide it at the same time. Like, cause the shame is like you trying to hide it. Right. So by me sharing it, it's like whatever part of me wanted to contract and hide it had to go away. Cause I just willingly shared it. And, um, it took a lot of the pressure off and, um, very quickly after I started sharing this thing, I was afraid of specifically the thing I was ashamed about, uh, the the symptom that was attached to it went away. Mm. What can women do with guys who have this who have this thing and 
are kind of difficult to talk to, but they want to help. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I, I've been, a couple of women have asked me that lately. And, I, and a lot of the times when, I, especially if like, it's the girlfriend of a guy dealing with the sexual issue, she really wants to help, right? Otherwise she wouldn't be asking. And she was like, oh, what can I do for you? Or, you know, you're okay. I know you're a strong man. I believe in you. Like, that is like the worst thing to say to most guys because it sounds, even if she means it with best intention, it sounds so condescending. It makes them feel like a little boy. And when I tell, tell a woman like that, I mean, assuming it's just a hetero, regular, you know, regular polarity, you know, masculine man, feminine woman, or at least they mean to be like that. What I tell to her is like, don't try to fix him because he, for him to respect himself here and like stop feeling ashamed about his masculinity or whatever is attached to it, he needs to overcome part of it himself. He needs to figure it out. Like if you fix it for him, he's going to feel like a little boy. And then you're, you don't want him, you don't want to have sex with a little boy, even if he can get a boner, right? It doesn't matter. Like, right? Like you want... But the best, but you telling him he's a big, strong man, like you don't tell that to a man, right? A man is obvious, right? So the best thing a woman can do, the best way to make your man feel like a man is to be a woman. It's like to be as feminine as you can, to be as soft as you can. If, his, if he comes too soon or his dick isn't working, you just enjoy yourself as much as possible because when he can see and experience like, oh, my woman is having a good time, my woman is like enjoying being a woman around me. She gets to be in her feminine self. He's going to eventually realize like, oh, I can actually be a man. It's like, it's like you're giving space for him to be the man. Whereas like if a woman tries to fix it for him, she's taking up all the masculine space and he's going to feel like a boy. Mm-hmm. He's going to feel emasculated, even if she means to help. So that's what I tell. And, you know, I, I tell this to my, my girlfriend all the time. Anytime like she wants to support me, I just tell her the one thing you can do for me that will always be beneficial is to be soft be soft, be feminine. And I will, even if I feel like shit, I will rise to the occasion. Like it'll just be a response to your, your femininity. And that's the best thing a woman can do. Mm, I see. I think also another thing is when it comes to, when it comes to sharing emotions and then sharing vulnerability, like the other extreme from, from fixing is like a pitying, like mm-hmm. something like, like I, I, I'm ashamed for something or I feel guilty for something and this is not really working. So Trying to fix it is, 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 is one bad thing, but the other one is like, oh, you don't have to feel that. It's okay. Like, like I, yeah. I think this is terrible as well. Like, it also yeah. takes, away, it takes away the vulnerability completely. And because I feel like I'm pitying, like I'm seeing as someone, I, I don't know how to put it, like, like I'm seeing as someone weak because of that. I, I yeah. don't like this at, at all. And this actually hits on a principle which ties into like kind of cult stuff we were talking about like um, so much of how a person is, is subjective of course and is affected by other people and if you're intimate with someone, if you're close to someone, you can affect how they are very greatly. Like uh, I I was speaking with uh, Hans Kohlmann, he was saying uh, how uh, his view of seduction is like I'm creating beauty in her even if she's not, even if she's an average looking woman, like the way I'm speaking with her is not to get anything from her. It's to like highlight the beautiful parts of her that are hidden and bring it out. Like that's, and I think that's so amazing in a relationship or whatever. It's like, if your man is acting like a boy right now, the best thing you can do is like, forget about what you see and like try to like look into where the man in him is and bring that out. Same thing if you're dating a woman and like she's being crabby or she's being angry or she's being not a beautiful person seeming like if you can look for the beauty in her you will create the beauty in her and she will become that person um so 
so much of, and you know, you can use this for dark things too if you want to manipulate people. But all of this, this is manipulation, right? Like you are changing how someone is into a way you, you prefer them to be, and there's nothing wrong with that if it's good for them too. Um, so, yeah, seeing the strength in the person, seeing the beauty in the person, that will create it, especially if you're close to that person. So now that you started talking about dark side, I wanted to switch to another topic, which is, which is Shibari. I was listening to one of your episodes on podcast with Omar Rupani, where he was talking about it in a very passionate way. And I gave it a try as well. So I'm curious about how, how you discovered it and how it affected you and your life. So for those of you who are not, who are not familiar, Shibari is Japanese art of bondage. And like a short story behind it is that it emerged as a way to tie slaves down as the most painful possible. But because Japanese are quite artistic and uh, they developed it to the degree that it was also beautiful. Like it, it not only hurt a lot, it also was beautiful. It, it looked beautiful on people. So after they canceled slavery, they kept, they kept the shibari and they kept the art. So, and it works to the day. So there's a lot of psychological, sexual aspects and another. So yeah, so I, I wanted to ask you about what's, what's your take on it and how it affected you. Sure. Um, I found it when I, I think it was in one taste actually, they, they featured Omar Pani, who's a BDSM teacher, as one of their instructors in one of their courses. And I was aware of it, but I never really understood like the whole kinky thing. I never understood why someone would do that. Or I still don't, I still don't understand the fascination with leather or anything like that. It's really not my thing. But um, he, he specifically broke down like the, the psychology of it and like what's why i mean i finally understood why again he told me a story right that that made me understand why uh someone would enjoy this and and um you know very briefly at broad strokes it would be like uh we have these certain dominant and submissive archetypes in us like these like modes of behavior uh that are primal and they're pre-conscious like they're in us it doesn't just because you're into something kinky doesn't necessarily mean that it's because you're abused as a child or you witness something during puberty like that happens like that's one reason why people are into strange things sexually or it might be a way that they're finding healing from something but when it comes to like the pure dominance and submissive archetypes i think that's very deeply rooted in us and i think that's even why cults work again like it's a kind of a parent-child relationship it's like deep in our unconscious that plays out sexually. It's basically Freud's sexual theory, like everything from our parental relationships replays in our intimate relationships later. I'm not saying that's necessarily true, but that's one theory. Um, so anyway, I, I discovered that, and I discovered that part of Shibari, which I found really interesting, and of all the dominance and submission things you can do, spanking, this and that, like the rope part was actually like the most aesthetically interesting to me, like I think is beautiful when a woman is tied up in beautiful knots and like, it doesn't have to be torturous. Like it could be done in a way that they're simply being held and like bound and it doesn't, and it can be done in a very comfortable way. Like I'm not interested in torturing anyone like that, mm -hmm. but I do, I do one, I, I started to notice that women really liked it. <laughs> I mean, that was like probably my in, initial draw before I just to be honest, before any of the psychological intrigue, like that was the thing that was like, okay, I, I want to learn something with this dominance thing. Like women like this thing. Um, but then also as I started doing it and going deeper with it, I started noticing as a woman like surrendered into what they call subspace, like this altered state of consciousness that comes when you're completely surrendered and the ropes help you do that or anything else in like domination, submission, spanking, whatever, like these are all 
methods of getting into that headspace. The thing that's important or the thing that's interesting to me is the headspace. It's not the actual physical whatever, although rope is cool. Um, rope is just what appeals to me. Um, I think it's because I like, I always like making Legos and like creating stuff with my hands. Like it's kind of, kind of that same kind of almost like childlike of like, cause there's, there's like a logic to way knots have to go. And like, uh, anyway, um, doing, doing Lego. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but also as, as, uh, I've noticed like women go deeper and deeper into the submissive space. Uh, if I'm connected with them, kind of like we were saying before about like a woman can empower a man by sinking into her feminine, like as she would go into her surrender state, I would go into an altered state of consciousness they call dom space where I just feel like it's not, I mean, to just say it makes you feel powerful is I think maybe not doing it justice. It's kind of like I'm feeling responsible. Like it, it's like, it feels like, uh, I don't want to over-spiritualize it, but it does feel spiritual. It does feel like I, I'm like completely responsible for this person for the amount of time that we've agreed to do this consensual play like she there is a power exchange and there's something primal and sexy and and it's not all i mean to be fair it's not even always sexy like a lot of the times i've done shibari have been at like uh, festivals or parties or things where like i'm not like sleeping with the person necessarily but it's kind of kind of a sexualized thing but like it's like what's beautiful about it is that one person is fully surrendering to another person and that in itself can be very healing um but I don't always do it for healing too. I think it's also just a sexy thing sometimes. Like I don't want to say it's one thing or the other. Um, but that's, uh, yeah, that's been kind of my draw to it. And mm. um, yeah, and, and I say I don't do it even that much anymore, but it's something that I find uh, cool. I think it's a great exploration. I think this dumb sub stuff is, you know, if, if you're a straight man, no matter what your culture is telling you, straight women appreciate a man who can be dominant and not dominant of being an asshole but dominant that you can take full responsibility for everything that's happening within a given reality even a two-person reality like very simply that's why women like a man who can make decisions on a date it, it, it's it's more than just like where do you eat for dinner it displays something about your character that is very important when it comes to more serious situations like if she's carrying your baby and you need to look out for her or like you're in charge of the family or you're in charge of a tribe like these are these are very important things and like is it that important that you know how to hold space while tying a woman up like not in real life not really but it displays a part of your character that that is and i think it's um you know i mean i mean i don't even i mean i don't like, as i said i don't even do this stuff very much anymore but it it helped me access a part of my character that I don't know that I would have been able to access otherwise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it says a lot about the attitude, how, how men approaches this whole thing, like when, when they're on a date and the, the, the menu picking is, as, you, as you suggested. The thing that fascinated me the most in, in Shibari was this division between uh, the dominance and control. Could be because, like, no, normally in in the real life, when you become dominant, you have control. But in Shibari, because because it's consensual, the, the person who is being tied up has all the control, but is in a submissive mode. So, like, you have both extremes at the same time. You you have both both extremes at the same time. You're dominant, but you have zero control because anytime the other the other person says that they don't like they don't want to do they don't want you to do that, yeah. you have to stop. And the other way around, so you can kind of like explore both in a safe in a safe way. I would put it this way, and you can yeah. you can get the touch of what the dominant and the control and the submissive and the, like no control feels like. 
Yeah, and I, I think extremely I think there's a parallel uh, to what we were saying about shame. It's like I think one of the things that can be very healing for a woman in a situation, or not not that a woman is always going to be in a submissive role, but very often with straight people, that's kind of how people choose to be. Um, but like for a woman who's not been able to trust men because they violated her or they let her down in different ways, for her to consensually be like, okay. I am choosing to give you all of this control. It's kind of like a parallel of like, I'm, I'm holding this thing as shame, but I'm choosing to show this thing that I'm ashamed of, which means I don't have shame. It's like, I'm choosing to give up this control, which means I actually have full control. Mm. I'm not afraid of someone taking something from me. Because the reality of it is like, if a woman says, okay, yes, I, wanna, I want you to tie me up, and then you tie her up, and then she says, okay, I'm done. And you, you, a guy, if he did tie her up, he could just be like, no, like, fuck you, I'm leaving. Like, you are putting yourself in a situation, but being able to exercise that trust and see that everything is okay is very beneficial. That said, you should only do these things with people you actually trust. But, you know, there's something, um, a lot, I think a lot of our, our psych, psychic damage as people or like our wounds come from um, not being able to have our guard down. Like when someone's traumatized because of something, it's like they, 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 something happened to them where they're like, oh, it's not okay to just be free. It's not okay to just be myself. It's not okay to just experience the world like and you know and so these happen in big ways with big traumas or even little things like oh I'm a, i can't i can't talk to people i'm attracted to or i can't make friends with people i want to be friends with because such and such will happen whether it's true or not and like these experiences that give us out like real experiences where like oh you can put your guard down you can be yourself and everything works out perfectly that can be so healing in different settings sexually or not yeah because in the end of the day, it's the same guard that the, the guard that protects you is the same one that's preventing you from connecting in the outer world and not in right out, outwards. I wonder be, before we wrap up, uh, you went through many experiences and like like an uncommon experience. I wonder how it affected your morning routine or morning. What do you do like after you wake up to the to the moment that you that you start functioning in the day and what do you do before sleep? Um. Huh, how do the, how have my unusual experiences affected? I'll just tell you what I do. I mean, I, I was intending on going to the Marines uh, in college. That was one of my very masculine forms of uh, personal development, and that got me used to waking up early. Um, very recently, I started waking up early again. So I wake up, I try to get up before sunrise, so like 5.30 or so. Um, I like to have a lot of space in the morning to just think. So I have my coffee, I do my writing, morning pages, I just work out things. Sometimes I'm not even writing, I'm just like sitting at my desk, like kind of talking to myself and planning out the day and exploring different ideas. Like sometimes it becomes the project I'll work on or like an idea for my book or an article. Like all of that comes from just like the free space to think. I think that's one of the most important things for people to have time to think. It's like what's so dangerous about our phones, they take away our space to think. Anyway. So that's what I do in the beginning of the day. Um, and then on a normal period of time, I, I write for two hours on my book. If I'm working on a, like a, a business project, then maybe I'll spend those two hours working on the project. Um, but my life is planned, or my business is set up so that I don't have to do that very often. I want to just like do the things that are normal and writing, reading, talking to people, um, doing stuff like this, podcast, whatever. Uh, and then when I hit to the point where I'm a little tired, so maybe after two hours, I'll do something physical, either yoga or kettlebells, or I'll go to jujitsu. And then I do another block of time, usually it's more productive. And then ideally by the first time I eat, which is maybe around 12, um, I'm kind of done. 
and the rest of the day is for quality time with my girlfriend, spending time, I've, we're fostering a bunch of puppies, hanging out with the puppies, doing yard work, physical, home improvement, reading, and that's, that's my ideal day. I see. Yeah, mm. when you started talking about this, what's this thing with the puppies and goats? Like, <laughs> I just read, uh-huh. <laughs> I just noticed something on your Facebook stories and I'm out of context, so. <laughs> Oh uh, yeah, well, I uh, I moved into this five bedroom home with my girlfriend, and uh, we didn't know what to do with all the rooms, so we invited uh, one of our friends, a couple actually, um, and the the woman we live with is a is a dog or a pet groomer, like she works with pets and animals and stuff. And anyway, some Thai we're in Thailand, and some of uh, some Thai families had uh, puppies. Their dogs had puppies, and they didn't want to take care of them, so they kind of dumped her dump the puppies on our housemate because they knew that she would take care of it. and we have a big land so we can actually we have enough space for many puppies so that's why we have eight puppies uh, i wanted a goat before we had the puppies i wanted a goat because it takes a really long time to cut our grass and i was like oh if we have a goat or two they'll just eat all the grass and they won't have to mow the lawn but so they're not related yeah I see. and you can also milk goats like and it's pretty healthy from what i've heard I guess so. I've never milked a goat. I don't know. I don't know how to start. You're just like, I've, if you had a goat, I would look it up. But I think the goat has to have a baby, right? So I don't know if I have, I don't know. A lot of things to learn. But right now we just have dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that there are YouTube tutorials on how to milk a goat. And I wonder I'm what sure. you'd find if you Googled it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, everyone. That's it. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for your time and for a good conversation. And I'm looking forward to talk to you again very soon. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks. Bye, buddy.